So funny story. The first time that I took Lady Baby, who is now 14 months, the first time that I took Lady Baby to the pediatrician after she was born, like, what, two, three days after she was born, the first question that the doctor asked me when we got into the office was, do you have guns in your home? Now, I wasn't surprised by this question. I had done my due diligence. I had looked up what actually is the reason that you take your baby to the doctor, to the pediatrician just days after they're born. And so I was expecting this question. A lot of moms have experienced this. This is standard of care in doctor's offices. And But my reaction when I was asked this question, nonetheless, even though I was expecting it, my reaction was, WTF? Like, how is this possibly pertinent to the care of a two to three day old baby? How is this possibly a question that should take precedent over any number of other questions? And because I was expecting this, I had discussed how to respond to this with my husband, because I really don't think it's anybody's business how many or what kind of guns are in my home, let alone whether or not there are firearms in our home. I wanted to respond to the doctor. I wanted to just say, break in and see when they ask this question, but my husband is more tactful than I am. And he wouldn't let me answer. Um, he wouldn't let me say that. So I just declined to answer. I just said I declined to answer. But this happened. This story happened two to three days after the baby was born last year. And th this was after in the hospital. So we were in the hospital for, I think, three days after the baby was born. And the pediatrician, it was actually a neonatologist, I think, at the hospital was sent specifically to my room. Now I delivered with midwives. So this wasn't this wasn't our OBGYN or anything. This neonatologist at the hospital was sent specifically to our room because I declined the hepatitis B vaccine. I declined to give that vaccine to my daughter on the day that she was born just hours after she was born, because why? Why would I give that vaccine to my daughter on the day she was born? Um, hepatitis B, and this, this is going to get tangential for just a second, but hang with me. Hepatitis B is a bloodborne disease that you get if you are an intravenous drug user or if you are sexually promiscuous. Um, neither of which my newborn daughter was, neither neither of which behavior was my newborn daughter engaging in. So the only other reason that a baby, a newborn baby would get hepatitis B is if the mom has it. Well, I don't have it, so I declined the vaccine. Um, now, th this, this is kind of well known among moms in our country that the hepatitis B, B vaccine is on the CDC schedule of vaccines, not because it's necessary for little babies, but because this is how pediatricians try to make sure that the hepatitis B vaccine is given to kids by the time they might become sexually active. So by the time they're maybe in high school, but they make it seem like this is a this is a risk to your baby while you're in the hospital. That's not true. If you don't have hepatitis B, then your baby's not gonna have hepatitis B. And fewer than, this is a statistic, let me read to you, fewer than 0.1% of US mothers have hepatitis B. So that means that over 99.9% .9 of babies born in the United States are not at risk of this. Yes, in the hospital, the day the baby's born, we are told that the baby needs this for their safety. It's also, and I know this, like I said, this is a little bit tangential, but it's also a little bit not tangential. Um, it's, it's, it's also not a matter of making sure that babies are protected from hepatitis B by the time they become sexually active. This vaccine does not provide immunity farther down the line like they claim it is. In fact, a study showed that only 24% of teenagers who had been immunized with hepatitis B at birth were still immunized um, by the time they were in high school, by the time they were teenagers, 24%. So more than three quarters of babies who got the hepatitis B vaccine, ostensibly to protect them as teenagers from being sexually promiscuous or being intravenous drug users, were not actually protected anyway. And all that's to say, th those are the risks of the actual disease. Now, the risk of the vaccine is this is the, the day your baby is born and there's aluminum in this vaccine. In fact, there's 16 times uh, the amount of aluminum that the FDA says can poison 
a baby that's of average birth weight of about seven pounds. So the 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 risk here of the vaccine does not match the risk of pos- of your baby possibly contracting hepatitis B, at least in my calculation. So I declined the hepatitis B vaccine in the hospital. All that to say, the neonatologist was sent to our hospital room after I declined this vaccine on the day of her birth. And told us when I when I asked when she, when she when she pressured us a little bit about this I said oh why why should I give this to my daughter today and she said I said I don't have hepatitis B and she said well if you get in a car wreck on your way home from the hospital and your baby requires a blood transfusion and that blood used in the transfusion is contaminated with hepatitis B you would want your baby to be protected against that and again my reaction to this this one did stun me I did not expect that answer um, my reaction was WTF. <laughs> I, I, if I had had my wits about me in this interaction, which I did not, I had just given birth, I had just completed eight hours of labor and giving birth for the same time, I should have asked her, um, how often in our country does that exact scenario happen? How many babies on their way home from the hospital get in a car wreck, require a blood transfusion, and the blood is contaminated with hepatitis B and they therefore contract hepatitis B? How often does this occur? Um, I wish in the year that is that has passed since this happened, I wish so many times that I'd thought to say that in the moment, but I don't know, I had just given birth. So that's my excuse for why I didn't think quickly on my feet here. So this all being said, don't even get me started, by the way. So we're talking about pediatricians for a minute. Don't even get me started on this whole, you will kill your baby if you sleep your baby next to you in the bed. If you co-sleep with your baby, you will, you will kill your baby. That is absolute bullshit, such bullshit. And this is not just my personal opinion. The studies actually confirm the bullshit that pediatricians are spewing here. Now, the worst part of all of this, and as you can tell, I am personally shopping for a new pediatrician for my daughter based on what we're talking about today. Um, The worst part of all of this is if you or I, any parent, any mom or dad asks any question, if we challenge any standard of care, if we push back against bad advice or point out errors in the science that in the so-called science, errors in the methodology that pediatricians use to give their advice, calling it science. If we defend our motherly instincts which tell us that breastfeeding is good and co-sleeping is normal as long as you do it safely. And it's okay to make your own decisions about your baby's medical procedures, including vaccines. If we act in this way at all, then all pediatricians do is they either, they get defensive, which means that they, they, they turn their behavior. This has been my experience. And I talked about this on Instagram yesterday and got just a tidal wave of response from all of you guys um, who have had the same experience. They turn defensive. They actually, they, they get kind of bullying. They bully you. They tell you, oh, listen, you're going to kill your baby if you do this. But ultimately, they just deflect to um, saying, well, the advice that I'm giving you or the standard of care that, that we provide here, that's the AAP standard of care, the AAP being the American Academy of Pediatrics. And in fact, my conversation, so I'm interviewing new pediatricians the last couple of weeks for my daughter. I get them on the phone. I, I ask them certain questions and I ask them, listen, I, I breastfeed my child. I co-sleep with my child. I, um, I, I don't go by the CDC, the direct CDC schedule. I make my own decisions about vaccines. Is this a problem? Are you going to bully me every time I come into the office about this? And the best pediatrician, meaning the, the best answer I got from any of the pediatricians that I talked to was um, the guy said, well, ultimately, you can do what you want, but I have to make a note 
in your chart every time you came in, every time you come in, that I warned you against all of these things. And the reason that I have to do that is because otherwise I could be liable if something happens to your child. And I actually, I laughed and I laughed with the guy because he, he was he was good natured about this. I laughed with the guy because he was actually honest for once. He was saying, listen, I have to not treat you based on my own judgment. I have to treat you based on the risk of liability to me. So we don't have to fight about this. It doesn't have to be a thing, but I do have to verbally warn you because I have to put it in your notes that I verbally warned you or else I could be liable to a lawsuit here. Um, needless to say, as friendly as that conversation was, I did not pick that pediatrician. Um, th- th- this is a problem though that we need to address not just in our personal lives, not just on our communities, but actually at the legal level. This is, in a sense, a political issue. And I've been doing some digging into exactly why this situation is happening to so many moms and dads across the country. And I'd like to share with you today what I have found. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. I don't know who needs to hear this, but here you go. You deserve to feel better than you do today, and you can with Headspace. They make meditation simple. If mental health is part of your self-care plan this year, then you owe it to yourself to try Headspace. Headspace is your daily dose of relaxation in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Maybe you're overwhelmed. Well, Headspace has a three-minute meditation for you. Maybe you need some help falling asleep. Headspace has wind-down sessions that their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations that you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach reduces stress, improves sleep, boosts your focus, and increases your overall sense of well-being. You deserve to feel happier. And Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to my URL, which is headspace.com slash Liz. That's headspace.com slash L-I-Z for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditation for every situation you may encounter. This is the best deal offered right now. So head on over to headspace.com slash Liz. That's headspace.com slash Liz for a free one-month trial. Headspace.com slash Liz. So like I said, I, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. You know this is a problem. Moms and dads across the country, we've all experienced this. You walk into the pediatrician thinking that you're just there to have a checkup to make sure that your child's health is on track with where it should be. And you walk out feeling like a piece of garbage. You walk out feeling like something that you're doing is going to harm your child. And the reason you feel like that, or the reason that I felt like that, is not because any of my actions are actually going to harm my child. Of course they're not. It's because the pediatrician has been disrespectful to me, has been patronizing to me, condescending to me, or downright bullying me based on choices that I make that are different than what the pediatrician wants. And the the worst part of this to me is the fact that, especially as mothers, I'm sure this is true for fathers too, but I can only speak from my own experience in this particular case. Mothers have a tremendously strong intuition when it comes to the care of our children. We actually know instinctually how to care for our children. There, there's, there's things that we can learn. There's, there's things we can be taught. There's things, there's, there are things we might not know intuitively, but intuitively, we know what's best for our children. We know how to take care of our children. We could survive just taking care of our children, even if no one else told us what to do or how to do it. Um, this is how, how we were created as women. This is how God intended us. Um, and this, this intuition that we have as mothers, this is one of the things that I have found to be bulldozed at the pediatrician's office. There's no acknowledgement of mother's intuition. There's no value on a mother's intuition. There's, in fact, there's, there's, 
they ignore a mother's intuition completely. They'll even contradict your mother's intuition if you don't have an, an evidence-based study on hand to justify your feeling or your decision, then that's completely disregarded. And in fact, it's worse than that because what not only is mother's intuition ignored, but there's emotional manipulation that happens from pediatricians. And I, I want to just interrupt myself for one second and say, I know that every pediatrician in the country is not like this. I am speaking in generalizations because this is the pediatric industry that I'm talking about. I know there are pediatricians who are wonderful. I know a lot of these pediatricians who are behaving the way that I'm describing are not actually bad people themselves. This is just, this is how they were trained. This is the model of medicine. They were trained um, in medical school. This is how they were told to practice. Some of them don't even like to practice like this, but they have to, like the guy that I mentioned a minute ago, who said, listen, I have to do this or else I'm going to be legally liable should anything happen. So, you know, their hands are tied. So I I, I don't want the impression of what I'm saying to to be that I am castigating every pediatrician out there or the motives of every pediatrician. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is there's a problem with the model that so many moms and dads like me have experienced when they take their child to the pediatrician. And what I'm saying is it doesn't, the problem with this model can be fixed, can be addressed, and it should be addressed because this is not, well, not to make a pun here, but this is not healthy for moms and dads or for kids to have this be, um, to have this be the medical model. So the emotional manipulation that that happens or that I've experienced happen at the pediatrician is that if we don't obey what the pediatrician tells us to do without the pediatrician knowing any context about who I am as a mother, who, you know, my husband is as a father, what our house is like, what, what our decision-making ability, our judgment, without knowing anything about the situation of our life, if we don't directly obey exactly what they say, then we're told that, that it's going to kill our child. We're told, you know, if we don't do these things, then we're going to cause harm to our little babies. And this is terrifying. I mean, it's even me. I, I sit here as someone who challenges the status quo on a daily basis. I expose corruption. I'm totally comfortable thinking independently and behaving or speaking in a way that at least the loudest voices, if not the majority, vehemently disagree with. I'm very comfortable in that role. This, I mean, it's what I do for a living in politics. But even, even me being comfortable in that role, I've still felt that 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 phantom fear when a pediatrician tells me that if I co-sleep, I'm going to roll on top of my baby and I'm going to suffocate the baby. Um, or, you know, when, when that neonatologist says, well, if you get in a car wreck and your daughter needs blood, like, you don't want her to be contaminated. Like, this is, this is heavy stuff to tell new parents. This is terrifying. It's a parent's worst nightmare to feel that, they're, that their baby might be at risk, let alone that they're the ones putting our children at risk. And so it's emotional manipulation. It's, 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 they're using these pediatricians that do this or this model of medicine uses fear as a way to coerce parents into complying. Essentially fear ends up driving parents' decisions. Like how can you live with yourself if you decline a vaccine and then your child dies from that? How can you live with yourself if you roll on top of your baby? How can you live with yourself? You know, X, Y, Z, it's, it's emotional manipulation. And I, I, I think that if there's a silver lining to COVID-19, not the virus itself, but the political response to COVID-19 in the past two years, it's been that mom's eyes have been opened 
to the fact that our political establishment, I mean, obviously I'm talking about from the top down, I'm talking about from Fauci and the COVID task force to governors and states and public health officials and the governing boards of, you know, uh, of the American Medical Association or the American Academy of Pediatrics down to local doctors. I mean, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually recommends that your five-year-old get the COVID-19 vaccine, which and, and mask for school between the ages of two and five, if they haven't been vaccinated, that you put a mask on your two-year-old. And if there's a silver lining to COVID, I think that it's our eyes have been opened to the fact that these people aren't always right, that they aren't the science in the sense that they can't be questioned, that they do make mistakes, that they, they are driven by political ideology, and there are financial conflict of interests with which cloud the way that they set the stand, their standards of care. And, and, and that's a really important phrase that, that I want to focus on for a second. What is standard of care? So standard of care is actually critical in why when you go to the pediatrician or when I go to the pediatrician, I just want to talk about myself here. When I go to the pediatrician, why I have these negative experiences. And standard of care is not legally defined in, in, in the sense, it's, it, let me make an analogy here. So standard of care means the same or... Let me rephrase this. Standard of care is legally defined the same way that um, legally self-defense is defined or legally in a police-involved shooting when a police officer feels fear for their life or feels the, the threat to their physical safety, they're allowed to use, they're just, they're, it's justified for them to use lethal force against the person that's threatening their, um, their, their bodily safety or their life. But it's not just this, 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 this legal standard when it comes to the justification for the use of force isn't just whether that police officer as an individual felt fear. Because as you know, fear can be based on, on rational means or irrational means. The, the justification or the, the legal standard, I should say, is if there is reasonable fear. And they, they analyze whether that fear is reasonable based on whether a lot, all police officers in that certain circumstance, would they have felt that same fear? It's almost like an average of, is this what a, what a normal person in your same circumstance would have felt? And standard of care is very similar to that. Standard of care is, okay, it, it's, it's the consensus. Is this what the consensus of providers in this situation would call for? And the reason that this is important is because right now in medicine, medicine is very much a CYA system, meaning a cover your ass system, that doctors aren't necessarily giving their own best judgment. They are, they are adhering to very strict standard of care, um, a standard of care algorithm, because if they deviate from that, if they add anything to it, if they subtract anything to it, if they disagree or dissent with anything, then they will be liable in a court of law for medical malpractice or medical neglect. And of course, that can that can not only ruin a career; it can ruin it can ruin an individual if you are if you are actually found guilty of medical malpractice. And so, the way that they protect themselves from this legal this uh, legal liability is they make sure that they are adhering to a certain standard of care, and they don't for a second deviate outside of that standard of care. Because if they don't, then they can never be held liable for malpractice or what the legal system would define as malpractice. And this is problem number one, right? This is this is a problem with our legal system, that we are able actually to 
um, litigate the tiniest, smallest thing to the point that doctors have to practice so defensively that they're not actually providing the best care that they can for their patient. Like I actually said to my husband the other day, why do we go to a pediatrician who won't show, who won't use their judgment, but has to adhere so strictly to the standard of care that I could just go on WebMD if it's just, if it's just an algorithm with variables and there's no clinical gestalt, there's no individual judgment that's that plays into it. Why do we even go to a person? Why don't we just go to a robot where you can you can spit out the algorithm? And th this is a big problem. So the question then is, okay, well, who defines the standard of care? Who Who is responsible for writing the standard of care? And the answer to this is, well, it's a little cloudy, to be honest. It depends. If you work for a hospital system, the hospital defines the standards of care. If you sometimes states play a role in defining standard of care. Any kind of organization that's um, a governing body, like if you are, if you're a cardiologist and the governing body of cardiology um, defines what the standard of care for different cardiac issues are. When it comes to pediatrics, the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics defines the standard of care. So the American Academy of Pediatrics is a group of over 60,000 pediatricians. And so they created this, this, consensus, if you join this group, um, this consensus is, it goes back to my analogy about the police officer, that most pediatricians in these circumstances, this is what they believe is the best standard of care. So when we're talking about defining these standards, so it's not just the AAP, it's also what's called evidence-based standards, evidence-based medicine. You go to any pediatrician, any doctor, and they say, well, it's evidence-based. Well, what does that mean? It's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a euphemistic phrase that I used to overlook, but evidence-based means that there's been a certain kind of study that has been done on any procedure or any drug, any, any pharmaceutical that, that demonstrates with a control, against a control group that the substance, the drug, or the procedure actually benefits more than something else, more than the absence of that pharmaceutical or procedure does. And if there is not an evidence-based study then a doctor won't acknowledge that or won't ever won't ever recommend anything. Um, they have to adhere to this evidence-based standard. The problem with this evidence-based standard is, well, there's a couple problems with it. First of all, these studies are enormous and they're enormously expensive. So the only people that have the money really to pay for these studies are the government or big pharmaceutical companies. Big pharmaceutical companies are, of course, motivated by profit. They're motivated by the fact that they want their product, which they're testing against a control group, to be shown to be effective. Therefore, if it's shown to be effective, then they add it to the standard of care for whatever whatever um, healthcare issue we're talking about. And then doctors, you have to, according to the standard of care, prescribe that particular drug for that particular ailment. And so pharmaceutical companies who stand to profit pay for studies to be done about their own their own drugs. Now this of course leaves all alternative type healthcare that where there's not a lot of profit. I mean there's not a lot of profit in the supplements, the natural herbs and supplements that you can get at any health food store. There's not the profit in those in those things that there is in a drug company's pharmaceutical product. And so alternative stuff in an evidence-based system is overlooked because there are no studies that prove the efficacy of this product. And if there's not a study that proves the efficacy of the product, then evidence-based practitioners won't touch it. So this is from the get-go, in my opinion, a disservice to the patient because it's ignoring a tremendous amount uh, of, of things, of tools that we should have in our tool belt to help us with our problems. The second problem with the evidence-based model is that oftentimes 
oftentimes even drugs that have undergone certain studies haven't been studied directly for certain groups where they're recommended. And what I'm talking about in this case is I'm talking about the flu vaccine for pregnant women. The, the flu vaccine is recommended for pregnant women, but did you know there's never been a study that actually studied the flu vaccine in pregnant women? It's shocking, right? When, when, I, when I was pregnant with my daughter and I you know, was obviously going for uh, prenatal care and they recommended the flu vaccine and I said, okay, well, can you show me the studies that show that this is safe? They, they, they couldn't, they couldn't. And I looked it up myself and there wasn't any studies. And that's, that's true with a lot of, with a lot of things. So it, it's a little bit of a contradiction. You'll see that there, when you have natural supplements or herbs that haven't been studied or haven't had these, these, these evidence-based studies done on them, the medical field won't touch them. But when you have a pharmaceutical that has been tested just for efficacy, but not for safety in certain groups where it's recommended, they still are okay violating the evidence-based model there. So there's a, there's a, a contradiction there that points to a profit motive, which isn't necessarily in and of itself nefarious. It isn't necessarily evil, but it is, it is a red flag. And then the third problem with the evidence-based model is that oftentimes these studies can be rigged. And there's a couple of examples of this. I mean, we saw this with COVID. We saw it with the hydroxychloroquine studies. We saw it with the ivermectin studies, where the way that the study was conducted, the way that it was structured and written, it was structured and written to beget a certain outcome. So hydroxychloroquine, obviously, there's only efficacy if you use it in the very early onset of the disease. But the studies were structured not to administer it until five or six days into the virus, at which point we already knew that it wasn't effective. Yet, the result of that study was hydroxychloroquine is not effective against COVID-19. Well, that doesn't tell the whole story. The study was structured to beget that outcome instead of structured to actually test the efficacy. Same thing happened with ivermectin. The same thing happened actually with the Gardasil vaccine. So the Gardasil vaccine, the control group wasn't actually a real control group. The control group, which was supposed to get just get, or purported, I should say, to get saline, the way, they, the way that they presented it made it seem like the control room just got a saline injection. It actually wasn't just saline. It had aluminum in it, the adjuvant that is, I mean, it's a toxic adjuvant, right? And these are called focebos instead of placebos. And so some of the reactions that the girls experienced during this initial trial of Gardasil um, were mirrored in the control group, but it was because it was because it wasn't a true placebo that it had the saline had aluminum um, in it as well. This is actually also true for co-sleeping studies. So we're all told like if you have your baby in your bed, it, it increases their risk of suffocation. It increases their risk that you're going to roll on them. Um, this is this is a dangerous practice. We're told, and they say studies show this. But if you actually analyze the studies that purport to show this, you'll find that they don't they don't define co-sleeping in a sensible way. They include in their co-sleeping group, they include people who are drunk. They include mothers who are under the influence of drugs. They include couch sleeping in this group of co-sleeping versus mothers like me who sleep without any extra blankets, without any extra pillows on a, on a firm mattress with it, with a um, sheet pulled taut. I mean, in a, in a very safe, in a very safe manner. And so they lump all of these dangerous behaviors in with co-sleeping in order to beget the result that they want. The result being they, they want to, they want to discourage people from co-sleeping. Now, why they want to discourage people from co-sleeping, that's a topic for a different day. That's a more philosophical topic here. The point of all of this is these studies, even when there are evidence-based studies, they are oftentimes constructed in a way that doesn't tell the whole story. And yet, 
providers are required to only make recommendations based on where there are evidence-based studies, where the standard of care as determined in pediatrics, for example, by the American Academy of Pediatrics is um, where the standard of care coming from the American Academy of Pediatrics includes only evidence-based studies. So I want to talk about the American Academy of Pediatrics because here's where the problems really start to get bad, <laughs> if you will. But first, I want to talk to you about Soul. Today's episode of the Liz Wheeler Show is brought to you by Soul. Soul is the sustainable orthopedic footwear company that seeks to enhance your mobility and improve your foot health to keep you in the game longer by building shoes from the inside out. So first of all, did you know that 85% of the population will have one or more foot-related ailments in their lifetime? A lot of these, and yes, they are unsexy ailments, but whatever, we all have them, can be helped with a footbed. Soul defines their signature footbed as a great place to rest your soul. It's affordable, customizable, and improves people's everyday foot comfort. Millions of customers rave about this product and two-thirds of Soul customers have two or more pairs of footbeds. Once you know the comfort, the pain relief, the performance enhancement, and injury prevention benefits of Soul footbeds, you will want them in every shoe you own. Soul has an amazing offer for first-time customers, 50% off if you use my URL. It's yoursoul.com slash Liz. So you can try Soul for yourself. They're so confident that you will love their products. They offer a 90-day money-back guarantee. It's very hard to go wrong there. Um, this offer is applicable to all items on the store, Soul store, be it footbeds or footwear. It is Y-O-U-R-S-O-L-E dot com slash Liz, yoursoul.com slash Liz. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has, well, a couple problems. <laughs> they have a couple problems. First of all, if you just go to their um, their webpage, it's aap.org. I'm clicking it open right now. You scroll down the page about halfway and you will find a portion on their page about equity diversity, and inclusion. And this is what they say. From the beginning, the American Academy of Pediatrics has been guided by its mission to ensure the health and well-being of all children. This includes promoting nurturing, inclusive environments, and actively opposing intolerance, bigotry, bias, and discrimination. And then the, the button you can click says our equity agenda. Now, the problem with this is not the fact that they want to include all children. Obviously, that is a good motive. However, we all know that equity, diversion, diversity, and inclusion is just the euphemistic name for um, the principles of critical race theory, the principles of racialized Marxism here, um, where, where critical race theory, of course, teaches that white children are racist based inherently on the color of their skin and that black children are oppressed based inherently on the color of their skin. It's an evil racist ideology. And equity, diversity, and inclusion is the euphemistic way that companies, woke corporations, or organizations like the AAP um, announce that they virtue signal that they are a part of this. Equity, as we know, equity is not equality. Equity is not equal access. Equity equity is discrimination. In order to achieve an equal outcome, you have to discriminate against certain people to hold them back to ensure that everyone ends up at the same place versus equality, which ensures that everyone has an equal starting point or an equal opportunity, I should say. So First of all, the American Academy of Pediatrics, as you can see, is polluted by this leftist ideology, which makes all of us moms, uh, should make all of us moms say, uh, whoa, wait a second, how are you trying to apply this to our kids? So they have they have an ideology problem, and it's not just based on this, this equity, diversity, and inclusion part of their homepage. When, when, I, when I mentioned the question about guns that pediatricians ask when new parents come in with their little babies, this is intentional. They do this on purpose. They do this because 
the first week that you bring your child home, I mean, we all, we've all experienced this. The, the protective instinct is just like 20 out of 10 here. You want to do everything you can to keep your baby safe. And you're essentially told by your pediatrician that your child is going to die by gun violence, which is um, certainly not true when they're little. It's certainly, it, it, it's a, it's a fear mongering technique. It's that, it's that emotional manipulation that I was talking about. And the American Academy of Pediatrics actually admits that they have a gun control agenda. They admit that the American Academy of Pediatrics, these are supposed to be the doctors that are, you know, making, weighing your child and making sure that they're on the proper growth track or prescribing antibiotics or whatever, whatever they do. These, these people have an agenda. They stand for an assault weapons ban. This is a political agenda embraced by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And so one of the ways that they they push this agenda, their, their anti-Second Amendment gun-grabbing agenda, um, is by trying to strike fear in the heart of parents, trying to tell parents from the get-go that it's unsafe for parents to have firearms in the home. So again, equity, diversity, inclusion, their gun, their gun ideology in 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics, believe it or not, came out with a policy statement in favor of what they call gender-affirming care. This is transgender transitions for children. And they came out in favor of this. Um, this is what they say. Uh, they say transgender identities and diverse gender expressions do not constitute a mental disorder. They say variations in gender identity and expression are normal aspects of human diversity and binary definitions of gender do not always reflect emerging gender identities. Now, it would be interesting because they claim that they make policy based on ev an evidence-based model. What is their evidence-based study that that backs up this policy statement? They, of course, um, they of course don't make any statements like that. They just they just talk about changing norms and they just declare unilaterally that that gender dysphoria is not a mental disorder. That gender dysphoria is just a normal expression of gender and identity. Um, when we know, I mean, this is anti-science, this is anti-biology, these doctors who are literally doctors of medical science, they, they're rejecting science in favor of ideology. This is, this is the governing organization of pediatricians all across our country, embracing gun control, embracing critical race theory, embracing transgender transitions for children for children and only endorsing gender affirmative care, not endorsing any psychiatric um, or psychological help for these children suffering from gender dysphoria that would get to the root of the problem to try to actually heal it versus just mutilating their bodies with transitions and hormones and eventually surgery. So there, there's a really big ideological um, problem with the American Academy of Pediatrics who has so much control over every recommendation that our pediatricians make about our children. And then of course, you can tell exactly what the ideological bent or agenda of an organization is if you look at their funding. So I did a little dive into the funding mechanism of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and this is what they say. They say, um, oh, by the way, the URL for this, I will post in my locals for anybody who wants to see this because I know all the references of this. I'll try to post all the references that I've used today in my locals. It's lizwheelershow.com slash locals so that everyone can see the reference for this. Because I know for this kind of topic, when it comes to pediatricians, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to challenging the status quo in big pharma, everyone wants to know the citation. I'm the same way. So I'll give you that over on my locals. Um, this is what it says on the American Academy of Pediatrics current partners page. It says, American Academy of Pediatrics partners with companies and organizations whose support helps advance our mission for children. This is what they say. They say a partnership does not imply endorsement of an organization's policies, products, or services. 
Okay, so they're, they're basically trying to say that just because we allow our partners to be maybe pharmaceutical companies, um, which you'd think would be a conflict of interest, or leftist organizations, which would con- constitute an ideological conflict of interest, they're saying they, they don't, they don't in, those things don't impact our recommendations, which I think we can all agree is BS. Of course it does. Um, however, they contradict themselves in the same sentence. Their sentence starts, a partnership does not imply endorsement of an organization's policies, products, or services, and only begins after carefully reviewing factors such as corporate citizenship, shared values, and policy alignment. So it does have to do with, they do share an ideology. Corporate citizenship, that's just another name for the ESGs that we talked about a couple weeks ago in the Great Reset episode, shared values and policy alignment. So your, your partnerships don't impact your decisions, but you only make partners with people who already share your values and policies. So therefore, your partners actually are reflective of what you believe. That's that's equally problematic, if not the same thing. It's, it's basically a difference without a distinction here. So let's look at some of their, their partner organizations. They say the following companies, foundations and organizations, represent the top 10 donors to the American Academy, Academy of Pediatrics since January 1st of 2018. Ready for this? We're going to talk about that in a second, but first I want to talk about Cozy Earth. Now, my favorite thing about Cozy Earth sheets is how fresh and clean and crisp they feel when you climb into bed. Nothing compares to that feeling. What makes Cozy Earth different is the sheets keep feeling that fresh and clean even after the first night. Why? Because the wrong sheets can trap body heat, leaving you boiling one minute and freezing the next, which is gross. Not so with Cozy Earth, which provide the softest, most luxurious, and best temperature-regulating sheets on the planet. It's like sleeping on a cloud. If you don't believe me, which you should or you wouldn't be listening, right? Cozy Earth has been featured on Oprah's most favorite things list four years in a row. They're made from bamboo. Cozy Earth sheets breathe so that you sleep at the perfect temperature all year round. And with thousands of five-star reviews, including mine, it's no wonder that Cozy Earth sheets have become the bedding of choice for interior designers and celebrities. Also, if you're not completely in love, you just send it back for a full refund. Our audience can now save 35% on Cozy Earth bamboo bedding. 35%, that's a good deal. Just go to CozyEarth.com slash Liz35. You gotta hurry though, this offer ends soon. That's CozyEarth.com slash L-I-Z-3-5. CozyEarth.com slash Liz35. So under this list of current American Academy of Pediatric AAP partners, um, even though these partners don't impact, they don't impact the recommendations, the standard of care of the AAP, but of course, the AAP only partners with them if they, if they already share values and have policy alignment. Um, first of all, they are partnered with just a lot of big pharma companies, a lot of pharma companies, Johnson & Johnson, Sanofi, Merck, Novavax, GlaxoSmithKline, Supernus Pharmaceuticals, I, I would say that this is a classic example, a textbook example even, of what's called a conflict of interest. If you, as the AAP is, if you set the standard of care that pediatricians are essentially required to follow if they don't want to be liable in a court of law for malpractice, if you set the standards and your standards include products like vaccines and you are partnered with a pharmaceutical company that obviously profits enormously from their product, which is the vaccine, that's a, that's a financial conflict of interest. I mean, how are we as moms, how are moms and dads supposed to have any confidence in the American Academy of Pediatrics actually recommending these vaccines based on their true belief in the science versus the fact that they're in bed with the pharma companies who profit billions and billions of dollars from the fact that children are essentially forced to have these vaccines by pediatricians across the country. 
that, like I said, it, it's a textbook definition of conflict of interest. And it doesn't matter that the American Academy of Pediatrics puts this little silly disclaimer, a partnership does not imply endorsement of an organization's policies or services. Well, it's a financial conflict of interest because you are forcing their product on pediatricians at the at otherwise threatening pediatricians with lawsuits or being liable for lawsuits um, and your partners profiting from it. Conflict of interest. Um, so lots of pharma companies. And then we go down to foundations and organizations. So the biggest funder of the American Academy of Pediatrics is the JPB Foundation. Who is the JPP? PB Foundation. Well, let's look at their money to see what their agenda is. That best defines someone, where they put their money. The JPB Foundation gave millions or gives millions and millions of dollars to Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Cecile Richards, the former president of Planned Parenthood, was on the board of the JPB Foundation. And riddle me this one, my friends. Riddle me this one. How can the American Academy of Pediatrics claim that they have the best interest of our children, that they care about the well-being of our children, the lives of our children, when they are partnered with an organization that gives millions of dollars to a business that profits from killing unborn children. I don't think there's any way to justify that. Ideology is the only way to justify that. Um, the Conrad Hilton Foundation is the same way. This is a partner of the AAP, the Conrad Hilton Foundation. They gave almost half a million dollars to Planned Parenthood of Pasadena and San Gabriel County. Again, how does the AAP think that we will believe that they have the best interest of our children, that they care about the life of our children when they partner with an organization that they say they only partner with because they share values and policy alignment and this, this organization, the Conrad Hilton Foundation, the JPP Foundation, gives money to Planned Parenthood, an abortion business. I cannot find any way to possibly justify this. Um, the Nicholson Foundation is another partner of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The Nicholson Foundation gave almost $2 million, that's a lot of cash, almost $2 million to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Now, that name might ring a bell. We talked about it yesterday. Um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation was a funder, is a funder of factcheck.org. That whole show is interesting for those who want to know about Facebook's censorship apparatus and the mechanism of censorship, which is the fact checks, who exactly is behind the fact checkers like factcheck.org. I did a dive into the finances there. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is one of those funders. They also fund the Nicholson Foundation. The Nicholson Foundation is a partner of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Remember, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation was founded by the son of the founder of Johnson & Johnson. So there's another big pharma tie-in that's a conflict of interest. $1 billion in stock from the son of the founder of Johnson & Johnson was given to start the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. They push very leftist political ideology like Obamacare, government-run healthcare. Um, they've partnered with George Soros's organization before. This is a very far leftist organization, which shows that the American Academy of Pediatrics says that they only partner with people where there's policy alignment and shared values. So they're taking ownership of the values of the partners that they're bragging about on their website. Are, this, this is very far leftist ideology. And then we have, uh, we have other product-related conflict of interest. We have Abbott Nutrition sells baby formula. We have Wreck-It Mead Johnson. It's another formula company. And we oftentimes get um, bad advice from pediatricians about breastfeeding. We're told, you know, to supplement our babies with formula. We're told to when, when maybe it's not necessary. Sometimes it is. I understand that. But oftentimes, it's not. Oftentimes, women just aren't given the resources. We don't have access to the resources. We need to learn how to breastfeed. 
um, it's discouraged after three months or after six months versus, you know, one or two years, which is ideally the amount of time a child um, benefits from breast milk. Well, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is creating the standard of care, which informs what the pediatrician is telling you about breastfeeding, the American Academy of Pediatrics is partnered with companies that want you to use formula. It's in their financial interest for you to buy their products. That is, again, a conflict of interest. So the American Academy of Pediatrics is this toxic mix of leftist ideology and financial conflict of interest, leftist ideology like guns, leftist ideology like transgender, leftist ideology like equity, diversity, inclusion, which is just another name for critical race theory, financial conflict of interest, partners with, you know, with, with pharmaceutical companies that create vaccines, that create formula. And yet we as moms are told if we do not obey pediatricians who are just mouthing the standard of care coming from the AAP, that we are endangering our babies. And so what happens is we go to the pediatrician and we face this bad advice. Um, Co-sleeping, let me talk about for a second. So I travel, every time I travel, I bring my baby with me. I don't want to be separated from her. I want to be as close to her as possible. I think it's the best for both of us. And I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. She sleeps great. I know that's a question that moms ask each other. She sleeps great. She does not sleep through the night. And I don't care that she doesn't sleep through the night because it doesn't bother me at all because she sleeps next to me. So when she wakes up, she just kind of rolls over, cuddles with me. Maybe I nurse her a little. We both go back to sleep. I personally think the idea of a baby sleeping 12 hours in a row by themselves in their own room at night uninterrupted is kind of absurd. I think the idea that we try to push our little tiny <laughs> neurologically undeveloped babies into being independent is, I mean, really contradictory of reality. I, I, my goal is not to create an independent baby. My, my goal is to mold and raise um, a person that ultimately is a self-sufficient, independent adult. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean trying to get them to be independent when they're six months old. Um, so intuition, this is, this is where I want to loop back and talk about intuition. So I'm told by pediatricians that this is really dangerous, that they can't endorse this at all, that I should be putting my baby in a different room and letting her cry it out, which there's so many problems with that. My intuition tells me that something weird and is, and something is off with that. I mean, anytime that any mom, any friend of mine, um, who's chosen to do that, any, any mom of a different generation who's relating their experience when they had babies, you'll notice that moms always talk about how traumatizing it was when they sleep trained their child. They said, listen, I still remember those two or three days. I was crying. My milk was letting down. All I wanted to do was just like claw through that door and get to my baby. My baby needed me. She was calling for me. And pediatricians tell us to ignore that motherly intuition that we're just doing what's best for the baby, teaching them how to be independent and not putting them in danger by keeping them in our beds. And I, from an intuition standpoint, I found this to be untenable. I found this to be something that um, didn't make sense to me because I know that just biologically, even from an evolutionary standpoint, like we weren't born with cribs in a different room. Like the mammals sleep with their young. This is, this is an evolutionary sense. But I also did a deep dive into this. I'm a very study-oriented person, um, a very fact-oriented person. And I looked, at the, I looked at the studies, is co-sleeping actually dangerous? And what I found was that no, the American Academy of Pediatrics and therefore pediatricians across the country actually aren't telling me the truth about co-sleeping. They're telling me that it's dangerous, but they're basing it on the studies I mentioned earlier, the studies that include factors like drunk drunkenness and um, being under the influence of drugs or having extra sheets and blankets and pillows or not having a flat surface or sleeping on the couch factors that really change the whole landscape. It would basically be like if I told you that driving at night 
was statistically shown to be deadly. And I didn't include um, the information that when I conducted this study, it wasn't just someone driving at night. It was someone who was drunk, who was doing drugs and who was wearing sunglasses um, without a seatbelt and not and looking at their phone. And, and I said, all that happened at night and therefore that person crashed, therefore it's dangerous to drive at night. Well, no, it's dangerous to add in all those factors while driving at night, but it's not the night driving that makes it dangerous. That's kind of like these studies. And I, again, I can post these studies for anybody else who's interested, but all of this, this unscientific advice, whether it's co-sleeping, whether it's, you know, the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine that's not recommended for, you know, kindergartners, whether it's masking of your two-year-old, whether, you know, it's the nonsensical advice about the hepatitis B vaccine and the bullying that I experienced and that other moms experience, whether it's, you know, well child visits. Did you know 700,000 times a year a child is diagnosed with an influenza-like illness because they went to a well child visit? There are 700,000 extra diagnoses of influenza-like illness just because these, these parents felt that they had to take their child in for a well-child visit. The well-child visit is either just because of a vaccine or because the pediatrician is motivated by the fact that the, the insurance company will only reimburse them if they have a certain number of visits. And so children are actually getting sick. They're getting influenza-like illnesses more often based on that schedule, but we're not, we're not told about this. Again, all of this combined with the leftist ideology and the moral of this story, the point of what this very long story has turned into is I'm in the process of finding a new doctor for my kid, one who has not sold their soul intentionally or otherwise to the American Academy of Pediatrics because th this is a major problem in our medical model. The experience, the negative and sometimes traumatic experiences that people like me are facing when they take their kid to the doctor shouldn't be. This is not something that we should accept. When, when moms are shamed for asking a question, when we are bullied for being skeptical of what we're told, when we stand up and defend our motherly intuition, when we disagree with the pediatrician or the standard of care, the American Academy of Pediatrics, we should not be treated with disrespect. And the reason that we are is everything that I talked about today, from, the, from who sets the standard of care to our legal system, to the political ideology that underpins these governing organizations, to the big pharma profit interests that cause a conflict of interest. This is something that I have just begun to talk about. This is not even close to the end of this conversation. I myself am going to investigate the direct primary care model. This is outside of insurance, but it's not it's not concierge medicine. It's not something that only the rich the rich and famous can afford. This is this is, you know, a monthly a monthly fee to have access to a doctor who's not tied necessarily to the AAP. So, we're going to talk more about this over on my locals as I continue to investigate it. I also want to hear all of your experiences and how you've um, not only what has happened to you, but how you've how you've reacted to this, how you've dealt with it, any solutions that you found. So join me at LizWheelerShow.com slash locals. We're also going to do, by the way, an extra bonus episode of the show this week. It's going to be a question and answer, kind of like a mailbag, mailbox segment. You can submit your questions over on Locals as well and see what other people, I posted that link yesterday. You can see what other people are already asking. LizWheelerShow.com slash locals. Also, also, I will be speaking at the Young America's Foundation's um, Faith and Freedom Conference on April 22nd. The conference is the 22nd and the 23rd. If you use my promo code, Liz, obviously, you can get 50% off of your registration. Just go to lizwheelershow.com slash YAFCON. That's Y-A-F-C-O-N, like Y-A-F conference. Um, lizwheelershow.com slash YAFCON. 
Um, 50% off if you use my promo code Liz. Thank you for watching today. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. And senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.